people think of this band as being very well composed on every front. Their music is well composed. They kind of project composure or trying to keep it together. They tend to look and dress like they're ready for a shoot in a men's magazine. Uh, and this is an album where, you know, they're kind of unshaven and their shirts half untucked and you can still smell the alcohol on their breath. And that's more interesting to me. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about The National and their new album, Sleep Well Beast. It came out on Friday, and uh, if you listen to this, this podcast, you know that I'm a fan of The National, and I really liked Sleep Well Beast. Um, I actually uh, had a chance to go out to New York and uh, spend some time at Aaron Desner's studio, uh, Long Pond, up in upstate New York, outside of Hudson. And uh, I interviewed the band. I did a feature on them that ran on uprocks.com in late August. Um, and it was really you know, fun to talk to them and, and see where the album was recorded and and just to get some insights on the band and, and their working relationship. You know, they've been a band now for almost 20 years. And this is a cliche to say, but it's, I think it's true in many respects that being in a band is like being in a marriage. You know, you have to manage relationships. Um, you know, it's relationships, that's the difference, I guess, from a marriage. It's, there's multiple people involved. But, you know, in a band, you have to sort of figure out who does what, who needs to be placated in certain respects, who needs to be confronted in other respects. And the National has certainly had their ups and downs with that, but it seems like they've achieved a kind of understanding in their working relationship. I go into it in the story. It's a really interesting thing, especially the, the dynamic between Matt Berninger and Aaron Desner and then Aaron Desner and Bryce Desner. Those are, I guess, some of the most interesting relationships in that band. They were pretty candid of talking about that and how those have evolved over the years, both in, in terms of their creative partnership and their personal relationships. Uh, so again, that ran on uprocks.com in late August. If you're interested in The National or in Sleep Well Beast, I recommend you checking that out. In this week's episode of the podcast, I talk about the record with Jason Green of Pitchfork, a very smart critic and writer. Uh, he reviewed Sleep Well Beast for Pitchfork. And uh, it was a great excuse to, to call Jason up and, and talk for about 45 minutes about this record. I've known Jason for a while, just through professional circles, but we've never actually had the chance to talk on the phone. And this pod is always a great excuse just to call up writers that I admire and respect and chat with them for a little while. So that's what we did about Sleep Well Beast and we had a really good time. But before we get to that conversation, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is our old friends at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With, SeatGeek, with SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at, at the best price, is fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action at face value. Now, I am going to see you two on the Joshua Tree Tour the day after my birthday on September 8th. Uh, I'm really excited. This tour looks amazing. And uh, I wanted to make sure I got good seats. So I went to SeatGeek. You know, I had the app on my phone. And uh, it was super easy and convenient. And I got perfect tickets. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, I really think you guys are, you know, are going to want to try this out. I know you guys go to a lot of concerts. So 
as a sort of an extra incentive to try this out, download the SeatGeek app and enter in the promotion code CELEBRATION and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's right. This deal is just for listeners of this podcast only. Just go to the app, enter in CELEBRATION, get the $20 off, get amazing seats, have a great time, and never say I didn't hook you up. Okay, so I talked with Jason Green about Sleep Well Beast. We both like the record. Um, and we're both fans of the National. And, and you know, we, we talked a lot about where this album fits in, I guess, the greater story of the band's career arc. And just like how the band has evolved over time, you know, lyrically and musically. Jason had a lot of great things to say. We had a really good conversation. So without further ado, here's me and Jason Green talking about the National and Sleep Well Beast. So let's begin like with sort of a big picture question here. You know, I, I have not read your review yet. You know, we're, we're taping this uh, podcast on Thursday, September mm-hmm. 7th. And I'm guessing that your review is going to run on the 8th, the day the record comes out. Um, I, I can neither confirm nor deny. Because <laughs> by the time this podcast runs, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to go up on Monday. So presumably right. people will have already read your review at yeah, that point. Yeah. And uh, I had a piece that ran on the record last week. So people can read that or not at this point. But anyway, so I don't know how you feel about the record yet. I have a general idea, but I don't know exactly. Um, how do you feel about the record? Do you like the record? How do you feel like this fits in sort of the Nationals catalog? You know, what is sort of your general take on Sleep Well Beast? I think that um, I wondered about this record before I heard it. I wondered if, um, and this speaks to my own sort of biases, but I, I think I kind of wondered if maybe if I had more room in, in my life for another record by this band. Um, they've been so good for so long, and a lot of their records have soundtracked various points in my life. Um, and I've, you know, I've uh, defended them to critic friends who've turned up their noses at them for one reason or another over the years. <laughs> uh, I've always found them to be just a really just subtly powerful band. And um, Matt Berninger is such an incredible vocalist to me. Uh, I've always thought they were great, but at the same time, I remember thinking around trouble will find me that, uh, you know, I, I may have had enough of this. This might be enough national for me. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a certain formula to what they do. And I don't mean to use that word uh, derisively, but there's, you know, there's a very fixed set of ingredients that tends to go into their albums and that make their songs very identifiably theirs. They deal with a very specific and narrow subset of emotions. They cover, you know, uh, a certain kind of life. Um, generally, some version of Matt Berninger's or a character he's played over the years. Um, you can kind of count on certain things. And so I think I was wondering, you know, they can make another pretty good record along these lines. And I wonder if I care. Um, so, what I thought was really refreshing about this record is that they did actually, in the end, make another pretty reliable record that fits into ultimately this little world that they've built. I mean, little is it another? Um, I don't mean to to deprecate it, but um, it is a very self-contained world. Right. Um, it's a world of dinner parties that you're always trying to get out of, uh, <laughs> weed that you're smoking after your kids have gone to bed, uh, little arguments you have with your significant other that tend to go over the same places. It's a very domestic, I mean, you know, he name drops uh, John Cheever on this record. There's a lot of little middle class, middle class signifiers that just pop up out of their music. Um, and I, you know, they managed to make another record in that world and it's basically a continuation, but they've done just enough stuff to it. And I use that word 
um, kind of flippantly because I do think there is a, a way in which they just kind of muffed the edges of their sound a little bit. You know, they went to uh, the fancier men's salon down the street and they got, you know, their hair mussed just so and layered and textured and they came out looking, you know, oh yeah, you got a new haircut, you look nice, but you're basically still you. You know, that's kind of how I feel about the Nationals. They use a lot of dad rock signifiers at once. You know, they kind of made their record, but they allowed a few more sounds in. They let a little more air into the mix. Um, there's a lot of noises on this record that you wouldn't have heard on their previous records. They've talked about that already. They talked a bit about that to you when you went to go visit them. Um, they talked about that in the Pitchfork interview, just about how they didn't quite treat this record like um, a root canal. Sometimes their records have sounded really unpleasant to make for them. Um, and I think it did just enough for me. I was like, you know, this is another national record, and I'm happy it's in my life. So in a very roundabout possibly long-winded way that's that's essentially my feelings about the new one does that make sense yeah i mean and and you said a lot of interesting things in there a lot of things that i want to revisit i mean starting with the idea of them of of national records sort of charting i guess berninger's life but i feel like that's probably true of other people in the band sort of the development of their lives in the past maybe you know 10 15 years and yeah for a lot of people they come into the national starting with Alligator, which came out in 2005, which is very much sort of a, you know, like a, a, a young, a youngish urban professional type record going out to bars, meeting, you know, members of the opposite sex or members of the same sex, whatever your persuasion might be, uh, and, you know, and, and, and being in the dating world and sort of the, the downsides yeah. of that. And then you get into Boxer and it's more of maybe a relationship record. Uh, kind of going into a marriage, maybe like early stages of a marriage. Then you have High Violet, which is very much sort of a, a, a parent record. You know, there's the song of Afraid of Everyone is on that record. Mm-hmm. And, and you can feel some of the tensions that parents feel when they first have children. Trouble Will Find Me, sort of a little bit deeper into that world. And then this record, which lyrically seems to sort of reflect on the idea of long-term marriage, maybe even marital ennui, you know, the thing that you feel when you've been with someone for maybe 10, 15 years and you're still in love, but there's those natural tensions that, that come about. And, um, knowing a little bit about you and, and of course my own life, I mean, I've listened to this band for so long and my life has followed a similar trajectory in that time. So for me, I probably feel a connection stronger with this band than someone else might who's younger or has a different sort of set of circumstances. But I think mm-hmm. for a certain kind of person, a certain kind of music listener, this is a band that I think people feel like they've grown up with you know, over the past decade or so. And um, for, for those people that have kind of followed the band during that time, like you said, this is a record that I think does have some different sonic things going on. There's drum machines, there's some synth parts, there's, you know, sort of orchestrations embedded in the mix, uh, but at the same time, it's a little more spacious and not quite as uh, cluttered as past national records. But I think what maybe will draw a lot of fans in is that it feels like the latest chapter. (laughs) Like, like, I'm at this point in my life too, and Matt Berninger's singing about this, and I can relate to it. And for the core of this band's fan base, that's probably going to be the big appeal of the record, I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's, there's no dancing around the fact that this is, you know, a band, comp- and they, they don't dance around it, and they're very funny and wry and straightforward about, you know, the lives they lead, the the, the, the kind of Brooklyn that they inhabit, because they very much inhabit, I mean, they don't actually physically inhabit Brooklyn anymore, they're all over the place, but 
I mean, um, few bands have been as specifically rooted in a very specific slice of a specific city, a specific borough of a specific city for quite this long. Um, and just to let you know how um, close it gets for me, I lived on their street, um, basically, <laughs> for four years. Um, I would often see um, Aaron Dessner at the coffee shop. And if you, we used to joke about the Matt Berninger hour. If you got up early enough and went to the, the coffee shop, he'd be hanging out there. Um, so, I mean, I literally lived in their Brooklyn. Um, like, <laughs> and it is, you know, um, I was, you know, for some reason I'm thinking of this piece from years ago, Carl Wilson wrote where he called it the urban archipelago. And it's this, you, this, you know, this creative class group of people, these another kind of outdated term, these young urban upwardly mobile professionals who are moving to cities and, um, in a way, I think the fact that this band has told these people's story made me wonder again if I was going to want this record at this point in my life, and particularly at this point in the world's history, not to get too grandiose, but I'm like, do I need another record of kind of the slight ennui of being a pretty satisfied and... Um, otherwise comfortable person who is married. Do I need this record in my life right now? Do I, do I want it? Um, and I don't think I thought that deeply or that specifically about it, but I think that I probably carried some of that with me as this band came back. I mean, this is, to me, a band, I mean, they're, um, one of their biggest songs was literally an Obama campaign theme song. Um, and that lyric, uh, we're half awake in a fake empire, to me, feels like hilariously... Um, emblematic of, I mean, you could use that to, you could use that to do anything. You could use that to talk about those eight years, you know, um, this idea that you lived in a city uh, where crime was really low and where all these things were sort of operating in a hum just outside of your consciousness. And you just lived in a pleasant, bustling, and happy place. And, you know, you know I think that um, this transition into this sort of era and, you know, they campaigned hard for Hillary. They, uh, they've, they've been sort of at the forefront of, of that, that culture's sort of political consciousness as well, um, that of the middle class, and um, if there is one, upper middle or whatever. And so it's interesting to me that one of the reasons this record feels darker and more interesting to me is because they, they go some of those places this time. I mean, there's the first, not the first, but maybe the most overt political rock song on a national record ever this time. Um, and that, and it's also one of the loudest songs they've made. Right. I'm referring to that song turtleneck right. um, since alligator, you know, I mean, they spent so many years sort of providing this soundtrack that, you know, either meant a lot to you personally, as you and I have sort of both admitted, uh, or it some something up that you didn't like about, people that you lived around or sort of thing, or just didn't speak to you at all. I felt like, you know, it's falls in a very sort of direct frequency. Um, and this is the first sort of time where in the last 10 years that, that, you know, Matt Berner just let his voice crack on a record. <laughs> right. um, he sort of screamed about something, you know, um, and he's expressing real anger. Um, and to use your sort of idea that people growing up with this band, I mean, I think a lot of people were like, wait, holy shit, what was I doing? What was I, what was I thinking exactly the last eight years? I mean, I don't mean to be so reductive that I, you know, bring it all back down to that. But I think that there's some of that unease coursing through this record. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I mean, and it was funny because you, know, you were talking about Fake Empire being a big Obama song and how 
you know, when I listen to Boxer, I when I hear that song, I think, you know, I think that's a timeless song in a lot of ways, but it also is very mm-hmm. tied to that time. It reminds me of sort of coming out of the Bush years and then sure. seeing yeah. Obama and, and maybe feeling some hope or feeling like, you know, this could be a, a new era. And then looking at Turtleneck, you know, a song that comes out 10 years later is being sort of yeah. a bookend in a way where yeah. it's like this, you know, because Fake Empire is this sort of almost orchestral song, very uplifting and uh, yeah. this idea that we're, you know, in this sort of, uh, you know, bana- you know th- th- this weird sort of political state that we're in in 2007, but maybe there's something beyond this that we can get to. And then Turtleneck is this song, you know, as you said, it's like the loudest song that's been on a national record in, in quite some time. It was recorded... Mm-hmm. It was recorded right after the uh, 2016 presidential election, and mm-hmm. it, it's basically Matt Berninger venting on the song. You know, there's, yeah. and it's clear. I mean, there's there's a line in there about a man in shitty suits who comes yeah. along, and you know, I, I forget the exact line, but it, it's clearly yeah. a reference to Trump. Um, yeah, and it's to me, I think national insult, by the way, to, to insult the cut of his <laughs> exactly. I mean, I feel like in ten years. You know, that may be a song that has a similar resonance that Fake Empire now has 10 years after that song came out, like where it's like, well, what was it like when Trump was elected? Well, this, that song kind of feels emblematic of those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, the, the urban uh, sort of aspect of, of the national, this sort of like, you know, this Brooklyn, you know, being very emblematic of Brooklyn which I think is true for right, a lot of there, people. There are stand-ins for Brooklyn in every, you know, like I use Brooklyn because that's, that's where I live and that's where they are. But, you know, it, I think it's important that, you know, it's any sort of awkwardly mobile, gentrifying area of a major city probably would be, you could throw a dart and hit a few national fans. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is interesting thinking about this record. I guess if you want to think about them being a Brooklyn band, that this was a record made in upstate New York. You know, that's where Aaron Desert right. lives now. I mean, Matt Berenger lives in L.A. Uh, the band members are all kind of dispersed. I mean, in a way, that is also a natural progression, I guess, for a lot of people in New York. <laughs> At some point, they leave New right. York and they, mean, and they go to upstate. Although I will say that as someone who has never lived in New York and has always been a national fan, that in my heart, I still think of them as a Midwest band that happened to move to New York, but still has some sort of inherent Midwest qualities to them. Chief among what them are being, some of those qualities to you? Well, to me, they've always been um, outsiders in New York. Um, certainly yeah. in the 2000 rock scene, they were. They were not, you know, they're in that book, Meet Me in the Bathroom, the Lizzie Goodman book. Uh, they're part yeah. of that oral history, but they were not, you know, you know, they were around when Interpol and the Strokes were really, you know, sort of the, the cat's pajamas, you know, <laughs> they, when they were really huge. But they were never part of that, and they certainly were not, um, you know, I think even now they're not really grouped into sort of that sort of kind of classic, cool New York thing Mm-mm. in a way that I think LCD sound system in a way was sort of grandfathered into that. I, I feel like the national to me, they're not ever going to be like that just by the nature of who they are. I think that also sort of the um, I think that the way that they carry themselves to me is is sort of inherently Midwestern, that, that sort of unassuming thing that they have, even with the suits mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. Um, there's, there's just something about them that does not call attention, you know, they do not call attention to themselves. They're, they're the type of band where, you know, you have to come to them and you have to spend time with them. And if you don't, if you take sort of a glancing look at them, it's very easy to dismiss them. Sure. Either as 
a yuppie band, a dad rock band, or as a boring band. <laughs> like, right. Take, yeah. Take your pick of take, whatever insult. Yeah. Take your pick. I mean, and you, and you alluded to this earlier that you've spent a lot of time defending the national to other, I guess maybe other music critics or other people that have, that haven't really connected with them. I mean, what is the case that you make and, and what are the charges that you're often deflecting from those people oh, when you talk about this I band? I mean, just everything you just said, sort of, I mean, you know, the idea, the idea that they're boring. Well, you know, it's not like a, again, it's like arguing over the, it, with these things, I mean, yeah, it's arguing over the color blue. Like, I'm not going to convince someone they're not boring <laughs> using the power of my logic. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do, you know, I remember having an argument with a friend of mine who, you know, will go unnamed. Uh, it was a coworker of mine, and he wrinkled up his nose and said something like, there's such a white rock band. And I remember thinking, wait, when did those words become, like, just inherently negative? Like, yeah, and I like, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I like I like a lot of rock bands that have white people in them, you know, and they're actually a really good one. Um, I just found, you know, um, what you said, too, about them being unassuming. Uh, I also think of another um, not coastal rock band, uh, Built to Spill, from Boise, Idaho, where Doug March's thing was always kind of, I mean, those two bands don't have a lot in common sonically at all, but they they, they have a similar sort of, lack of coolness and poise and there's a sense that they're you know dads and they are you know they're 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 sort of living a more quotidian less charged less uh charismatic to use a loaded word existence than the typical rock front person um and that is its own kind of self-selecting appeal for some people um i always was drawn to the idea that someone who seemed very mild could actually be the center of a really compelling rock band. Um, for me, that meant something. That meant something specific. Um, I think it means something to a lot of people who probably have similar sort of thoughts and, you know, they have this idea that, you know, maybe if someone just paid attention, if I got someone to pay attention to me in a unique way, I, I could also be in something great. And that the, the the desire there is to be a part of something powerful and good. It's not necessarily, I must be the person at the center stage that everyone is staring at. That's not quite the same impulse. And that's the impulse that guides a lot of the more, uh, to use your word, sort of cool, uh, these idea that these were the cool kids bands. I mean, I was always drawn to the uncool, the uncool, cool bands, so to speak. You know, uh, Matt Berninger has so many lyrics about standing around at a party, not having any idea what to do with themselves or what to say. <laughs> right. um, it's one of my favorite things about uh, his lyrics is that every album you can count on at least one. He's, he's running outside of a party. He's trying not to crack up. He's just swallowing punch. He's, you know, he's whispering to his wife, can we please get out of here and have a drink? It's just, um, he's always the guy who doesn't quite feel like he belongs in the room, who is sure someone's looking at him funny, who is probably holding his coat wrong, who's probably uh, the least well-read person in the room, who is blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, those are all the sort of things that seem like they go through his head. And the fact that he also has this low voice that, you know, he thinks really close to the microphone like a crooner does, but he basically is just muttering under his breath. That's not to dismiss his singing. It's, you know, very rich. But the way that he delivers, it's sort of like it's like you're up against that wall with him and you're the only person hearing him being like, Oh God, I'm just sitting here drinking punch. When the hell can we get out? And, uh, that's conspiratorial. If you relate to that, you inherently relate to that. If you find that guy to be a drag 
and you're trying to get away from him, then you're probably not going to be a fan of his band. Yeah, and and I agree with everything you just said. I, I mean, as far as like Matt Berenger's, you know, sort of delivery as a vocalist and in his lyrical persona, I, I find it to be very attractive and relatable, and you know, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think. Uh, and people, this has even become a cliche now with the national, but I think they are funnier than like what people give them credit for. I think Berninger is oh, not yeah, just like sure. a, yeah. a strictly mopey guy. I think, uh, you know, it, it's sort of the mingling of like wit and misery and observational details and sort of, you know, non sequiturs, you know, in his lyrics that makes it really compelling to listen to. I think musically yeah. too, uh, the national, um, you know, it is a much sort of unconventional, much more unconventional band than maybe initially meets the eye. I mean, I think sometimes people who aren't into the band dismiss them as being sort of like a boilerplate indie rock band. But the fact of the matter mm. is, is that this is a band uh, that has never really dealt in riffs. Like they're not a guitar riff oriented band, yeah. which is not, which for some people would be a criticism. But to me, there's something really interesting that goes on with the way the guitars work in this band, the way that the drums often set the pace and uh, mm-hmm. are a lead instrument in the in the band a lot of the times, mm-hmm. um, and and how there's so many things that are embedded in national songs sonically that really do not emerge until you've been with them for a long time. Like they, I mean, this is not a band that is really designed for the streaming era. You know, they're not a band that is really, that benefits from sort of dropping in for about 15 seconds and then dropping out, you know. That's fair, yeah. They're they sort of like a old school band in, in that respect and that can maybe be a disadvantage uh, given how people listen to music now. Um, but, you know, I, I also want to go back to something you said earlier too, the sort of, you know, <laughs> like the charge of them being like a white guy rock band and that being a criticism. I mean, to me, it's one thing to say, like, well, this band does, isn't really my cup of tea. I don't really get into this kind of music. Like, I understand that. And as you said, you can't really mm. argue someone into liking something that they don't like. Um, but to me, you know, I guess I feel like you can only be yourself in a, you know, when you're an artist, you know. And yeah. would, it, would it be preferable if Matt Berninger fronted some sort of phony, baloney persona or he try to pretend that he was living a kind of life or had a different kind of perspective than he, than he really does. I mean, to me, the, the, the way that you judge a band is you try to figure out what they're doing and you see how well they're doing it. And I feel like the mm-hmm. national, they established something, you know, they you called it a formula earlier. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think this band has a fairly narrow stylistic range and, and thematic and lyrical range. You kind of right. know what you're going to get with a national record in, in, in that respect you know that there's never going to be something too radical sonically or, or lyrically or anything like that. Um, but, you know, as far as being a band that um, is sort of observing a certain kind of person and how they grow and age and how they mm-hmm. see the world um, and, and, and sort of evoking that perspective and evoking, I guess, the feeling of that, they're really good at that. <laughs> I don't think that can oh, really be disputed. Oh, they've always been really good at that, yeah. I mean, they're a very psychological band. I mean, it's a band that they're, you know, um, they're made for walking around with headphones on, in my opinion. I mean, some people might say, you know, oh, you should listen to this band at home on your stereo system. And maybe someone believes that very strongly about this band. But to me, they're ideal for walking around with their headphones in because they are like marinating in someone's headspace. Right. And, and to go back to your point earlier about the way the band works, because I feel like, you know, he's such a character, so everyone talks about 
you know, his Berninger's lyrics, his voice is this, but like the way the band works too, is that like you said, they are, they are a band that they kind of create space. They don't really, I mean, they have a very propulsive drummer. So these, these songs always have a very strong driving beat and helps them work live. Um, but like on record, they kind of create a lot of space, you know, um, the only sort of, analog in terms of rock bands is you know it's like you too if their lead singer just wanted to stay at home <laughs> instead of saving the uh saving entire continents by himself um that's kind of how the band works and there's a song on this record that is so so reminiscent of classic u2 that it's almost staggering it's that song day i die and it has like a straight uh two note little um guitar melody that's basically the edge um but similar to u2 in that regard they kind of they're there to create this idea of vast expanse um there's not a single thing in that music that's supposed to be drawing your attention towards it so it should be focusing your attention kind of making your attention dilate on a single thing maybe it's you know a guitar line or a synthesizer or like a driving sort of melody inside the music it's there to create a lot of space for you and that's why i think they're so good at you know sort of if you need to wander around and sort of exist in your own head in a sort of soft focus way there there's almost no band better at, at letting you do that than the national i i want to talk uh, ask you about how you feel about the sequencing on this record because to me you have the first half of the record which is a relatively rocking half. I mean, at least mm-hmm. like the, the the loudest songs are are sort of front loaded a little bit. Where you have that song you just mentioned, "Day I Die," you have this the system only dreams in total darkness, which was the first single, mm-hmm. and I I think is is a great single. I mean, this band typically has really strong single singles that come out at the beginning of the record, and uh, yeah. I think that was a good one. And then that song we mentioned, "Turtleneck," uh, the anti-Trump song. Uh, which was a really abrasive song. Actually, when I interviewed The National, they told me that The System and Turtleneck were originally kind of part of the same song. And Turtleneck... Oh, interesting. I missed that detail. Yeah, Turtleneck ended up being... They basically took the most abrasive part of that song and they just kind of repeated it over and over again, and that's what became Turtleneck. Um, So you have that sort of half of the record, and then the back half of the record... um, is actually pretty quiet. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's it's a much more low key part, and it, I think it gets pretty deep into, um, you know, Berninger talking about marriage, talking about relationships in a very romantic way in some respects. I mean, that, that song, um, you know, "Dark Side of the Gym," I think is a pretty gorgeous song, especially kind of almost like a countryish type feel to it. Very late night kind of taking a yeah. midnight stroll type song. But then you have songs like I'll Still Destroy You <laughs> and Guilty Party and Sleep Well Beast. You know, I mean, sleeping is sort of a, a recurring thing throughout the record. Um, yeah. This idea of, you know, and you could apply that to tensions in a marriage, sort of sleeping and kind of like letting them lie, but they're still festering yeah. under the surface. You know, Berninger's talked a lot about how all of their love songs are political. So you could also talk about this idea that maybe some of us are sort of sleepwalking right now through this administration, mm-hmm. kind of hoping that this nightmare will end soon. Um, yep. I'm just curious, like what's your sort of take on the arc of the record and how it's sequenced? I mean, do you feel like it whole, I mean, cause I mean the back half, I, I know like when I saw the band live, I, I was at that, uh, 
they played two shows at the Hudson Basilica in, in July and I was at those shows and I love the record, but like hearing the album live, it definitely, you know, hearing so many slow songs in a row in a live setting isn't always mm-hmm. the best thing necessarily. I assume when they go sure. tour this record, they're going to sprinkle in Mistaken for Strangers and, <laughs> and Blood Buzz Ohio, some of the more upbeat numbers in there. Um, but yeah, how do you feel about the arc of the record and, and how, that, how the record kind of unfolds like that? Man, I think the sequencing is real weird, and I don't necessarily mean that as a, a criticism. It's not, um, it doesn't hurt the record for me as a listener, but it definitely makes it one of the stranger things they've done just because they're so meticulous. That's like one of their most well-known qualities is that they're a very meticulous band and they sort of, their job, you know, when they go in the studio is to create this sort of rounded whole experience. And, you know, um, their albums have always felt like someone had probably, you know, spent an entire month just, worrying about how these two songs fit together. And this album does not feel like that to me. It feels, it's the most interesting part, I think, of it in terms of like the band's story to me is that it feels like it's really ragged. Like, that, you know, people, you know, um, think of this band as being very well composed on every front. Their music is well composed. They kind of project composure or trying to keep it together. They also, you know, they, they tend to, look and dress like they're ready for a shoot in a men's magazine. Uh, and this is an album where, you know, they're kind of unshaven and their shirts half untucked and you can still smell the alcohol on their breath. And that's more interesting to me because I think that what you said earlier about the first half of the record being kind of the more conventional half, um, just in the sense that it's like the front loaded you know, side of the record, the, the the festival openers side of the record, the show openers is like five or six of them in a row. And I was, I could picture each one of them starting, you know, um, in a concert and generating a bunch of cheers. And in a way that's the less interesting half to me, the day I die song I referenced is, I mean, it's a good song. It's my personal least favorite on the record probably because it just, it feels almost exactly like it could have been slotted into any number of the last three national records and it would have fit just fine to me. Um, but the last half of the record is, interesting to me because it is it's real like it's real moody and it's full of all these it's probably the oddest production choices on the record happen in some of those slow songs it's not it's not um an abrasive half of the record but i think some of the strangest drum programming and the orchestration that pops up at the end i think it's in a dark side of the the gym and it sounds like van dyke parks just like (laughs) just fell in through a window and decided to start adding you know trills Right. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, that's obviously Desner's, you know, uh, there's a there's a very strong composing pedigree. So it's not out of nowhere, but it's out of nowhere for the record and in the world of the record. And it just sort of feels like it's being true to what they've said about the record being this personal thing that they let kind of breathe. And that's kind of my favorite part of it is uh, it does feel like the record where you get to know a little bit more about maybe who they are or who this person that they project, this, this persona is when they're not watching themselves so carefully. Um, those are the most, you know, lyrically open songs. There's a song that that's dedicated directly to Matt Berninger's wife. It name checks her in the title. Um, that's a real like fourth wall breaking sort of thing. And all those songs feel like. That's Karen at the liquor like the store. Last, 
Yeah, we'll turn to liquor store. And, you know, all those songs feel kind of like the last side of a triple album. Like, they're not <laughs> sure anyone's listening anymore, so they're just going to talk to themselves. Does that make sense? Right. Um, no, yeah, totally. I love it so much. I also think that they're, this is my last thought, I think that they're much better to me when they slow things all the way down. They've always been better to me as balladeers. I mean, they make really good propulsive driving rockers that work really well live. I've seen them live a bunch. It's always a big shock to see just how much the music roars off the stage when it sounds so kind of placid sometimes on record. But to me, they're still inherently at their best when they slow all the way down. It sort of redeems this charge to me that they're quote-unquote boring. I mean, I think that everything that they have to say as a band that's super compelling happens at like a really slow tempo. I think all my favorite songs of theirs tend to be the ballads, the sort of dusky, I mean, it suits his voice so well, it suits the, the late night intimacy of their sound so well. Um, and so that back half of the record, I mean, it may have been a little bit dull live, but on record to me, that's as compelling as they get. Yeah. So I, I love the last half of the record. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I would say that in a live setting, yeah, I, I do like the rockers, but when I'm listening to them, like on headphones or at home, um, I do like the ballads too. Uh, there is sort of, you know, like when, when, when uh, Berninger can get into like, you know, Sinatra mode, like where the where the uh, bow tie is loosened and it's hanging around his neck, and he's just yeah. and he's drunk and he's singing these songs like the Pink Rabbits type songs. Um, yes, that's my personal favorite. I think I would probably point to that one. Yeah, I love that song. Like, what is your favorite song on on Sleepwell Beast? Um, I think it's probably Dark Side of the Gym, actually, um, or I'll Still Destroy You. Um, just really. Um, unadorned affecting sort of moments where not even really trying to be a rock band. Um, like you mentioned earlier, you can only be yourself. Um, I mean, we could have a side discussion picking that uh, bone, but I do think that <laughs> for this band, they are the best when they are not forcing anything at all. Um, and uh, those songs are just completely unadorned, naked sort of expressions of this person's heartache and they exist squarely within this little world. And they're like the most nationally national songs. <laughs> I can sort of right. use a tautology to describe them. Yeah. I mean, um, when I say like they can only be themselves, I think you can be yourself when you're pretending to be someone else. If that's who you think you really are, if that makes right. any sense. It's like a, a hidden side of you maybe. But yeah. like, cause I think like there are people who are not themselves who take on a persona, but they feel like that persona is a truer expression of who they are inside than with who they may appear to be. So that has an right. authenticity to it. Whereas I think with right. the national, I think this is who they are. Like if they were to project some sort of danger, or conventional yeah. sort of like rock and rollness, it would it just would read as phony and it, people wouldn't connect with it. I think yeah. the people who love this band they connect with them emotionally because there's something in the band that they feel like feels real. That feels like they, it's something that they can connect to emotionally, uh, you know, in yeah. a profound way. And I mean, with the National, there's always this sort of weird thing where they are this, you know they write a lot of uplifting songs that sort of rise and have strings and have big emotions right. in them. But I think at the core, it's always about a pretty small, intimate emotion. And yeah. in the back half of the record of Sleep Well Beast, it is them, I think, in a way that they're sort of most intimate. You know, there are not a lot of yeah. those, you know, there's no song like England like on this record really, you know, which 
you know, from High Violet, you know, which right. is, you know, in a way that sort of prototypical national song that's kind of starts at a quiet place and then it swells into this beautiful thing at the end or fake empires like that. Uh, you know, there's any right. number of national songs like that. Uh, these songs are more in the mode of, you know, maybe those songs on the second half of Boxer, like Slow Show and Green Gloves, you know, that right. don't yeah. really ever explode. They kind of stay at a quiet level, but there's little explosions inside of that you know you kind of feel a payoff at the end even if it's not sort of telegraphed in like big musical flourishes exactly yeah no i completely agree um so yeah i mean rock band makes good rock records again (laughs) (laughs) to sum up yeah so you know it's interesting i want to go back to something you said earlier about how at the end of trouble will find me you said you like that record but you're sort of like you know is this it like do uh, have i been sort of sated with national records at this point and this record yeah. sleep while beast comes out and you find okay yeah i actually can like another national record it's different enough and it, they they execute it well so i'm into it um yeah. what are your thoughts on like a band that's in this position this this band that you know they're now seven records deep into their career um i think that for those of us who are into the band they they do have a catalog of now I think five really strong records and the first two records have their merits too, but you know, people can argue about which records their favorite. Yeah. I mean, what is the key? I think in your opinion, like what is the key, I guess, to, for a band like this continuing to be interesting or, or continuing to hold your attention? Because it does seem like over time the cards are stacked against you. Even if you are still making like good music, you know, people sort of naturally lose interest a lot of times. Um, and, and especially with a band like The National, which maybe doesn't totally call attention to itself. Um, you know, there's, you know, if you're into indie rock, you know, there's the War on Drugs record. Maybe you're going to care about that more. There's like any number of mm-hmm. younger bands that are maybe sexier than The National. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm done with them. What do you think keeps a band interesting over time? And, and what is the key to that, you think? Man, I mean, I don't have like a universal to that um, at all. Because, yeah, but I, for the national, um, I mean, I had one thought listening to this record about what, what, this is such a specific answer to a very big question, which it's going to, it's kind of ridiculous. But um, with each band, I, I think there's this sort of balance between, um, you, your, uh, your comfort zones and your crutches. Um, you know, there's this place where you exist naturally, uh, you built a dynamic and then there are, uh, you can, you can use this for any creative pursuit. This is a similar thing with writing. You know, I have a similar, I have a sort of tone I use. I have a kind of way that I think through things in writing. And then I have ticks. They have things that I just repeat. Um, and, uh, with a band, I think there's a similar sort of, you know, ratio of things that just will always work. And then there's the, the whatever medium you're using to get those ideas out at any given point in your career. Um, and so to, to, to drill down on like the national, for instance, I mean, I think as long as they continue to sort of write honestly and interestingly and perceptively and wryly and humorously from this place, I, I think they'll always be at least good. Um, and they'll probably always have fans, but there's that larger question of like, okay, well, are, you know, I mean, what you're asking is essentially a question of pecking order, right? Like, oh, where do they fit on a festival lineup? And, you know, like, how big of an audience will they maintain? And, and that's a tougher question. And um, I will say that listening to this record, as someone who sort of felt like maybe they were going to be a band that was less important to me. And uh, 
at the end of this record, they had, they had sort of piqued my curiosity. I was like, all right, they've changed one or two things to sort of make me interested in their, their world again. It's the same world, but they've changed a few things. And, and I was like, well, what would they have to do next time? And the thing I arrived at is they should get rid of the goddamn grand piano next time. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's the remaining element of their, their sound, and every band has their own, where it feels like whenever it comes in, it's like somebody hit a, a patch, and it's like, oh, the national song feeling, you pour it in right there. <laughs> and it's in the grand piano, and it feels, it, it, it does sort of feel like actually the only moment this record where I actively tune out. Because, you know, I mean, some of their most emblematic moments, certainly the fake, the fake empire is basically just this pedal-drenched, beautiful piano sound. And there's so many moments this record where the piano comes in, and I think, you guys could maybe step away from that. And figure out how to find the national without it. And I think for each band, you have a thing like that. Um, right. So that's a really weird answer to your question. Um, no, I think some bands figure this out and some bands don't. Um, honestly, some bands, they have an idea and that idea only goes so far, honestly. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. You know, there, there is a, if, a, if a band has like a sort of central idea or something that they've figured out how to express, maybe there's a finite number of times to express that, interestingly. Yeah, or there's only so many good songs you have in your system, you know, and maybe you reach your max. You know, I think with the At least within this, yeah, within this format, you know, like, yeah. yeah but, the, you know, I don't think they reached it yet. Yeah, you know, with the National, no, with the National, they, they still have that card to play where they hire Brian Eno and they make the experimental <laughs> dancey record. Uh, about well, that one frightens me a little bit. I hope they don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want them to make the dancey record about consumerism, um, and that's sort of ironic. And uh, where you know, Matt Berninger's yeah, like right dr he's dressing up like the fly, like from you know Bono's era, you know, Zoo TV era. Yeah, you know, like he could, uh, you know, or like our or like Arcade Fire writing their own fake bad reviews. Or, exactly. Yeah. No, I think that way lies oblivion, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly i mean I'm, I'm being facetious when i say this of I course but, are, but i yeah. feel like you know every you know that's always like the most predictable card that the band can, it's like okay time to hire brian eno or maybe james murphy get some cowbells uh you know get some disco bass lines and uh you know right we pretend to be above my own <laughs> pretend to be over my own band um where do you put sleep well beast in the greater catalog like it's early yet and obviously oh, with okay. national records People change their minds all the time, but I mean, right now, right. what does your gut tell you? Um, right now, I feel like um, it's probably my fourth or fifth favorite, which might sound harsh, um, but, um, you know, I think that it belongs in their run of really good to great records. Right. Um, it's, you know, it won't, honestly, my two favorites are um, Boxer and Oddly, uh, maybe this sounds odd given what I said, but Trouble Will Find Me um, are kind of the two most resonant ones. And it's kind of just about personal preference and the songs that are on those records. And I would say after that, it's probably High Violet and this one kind of exist together to me in terms of like where they stand and like this little ongoing chapter book thing yes. they're doing with their albums. I feel exactly the same way. I would say fourth oh. or fifth favorite. And I am also a big fan of Trouble Will Find Me. That is like rivaling... Boxer or alligator is my favorite, and maybe this says yeah. some, maybe this says something about Sleep Well Beast that maybe we'll feel that way in a year or two, or you or I will. Because I know when uh, Trouble Will Find Me came out, I thought it was a really good national record, but I thought, well, you know, this is a really good version of what they do, but I don't think it tops what they've done before. 
and it just right. totally grew on me over the years and it became just like this great record one of my favorite records they've ever done so oh, it's a grower it's a grower <laughs> it's a grower said about this band forever have you heard of this Before concept band. called growers uh this is a yeah. critical concept <laughs> i think we just invented it on this podcast yeah i've never heard that people that tell tell the, the, the national that they're they're a grower act. You should spend some time with these guys. It'll pay off. I know. I know. People are used to the national being an immediate band that you love right away. But hey, guys, it's <laughs> yeah. a grower. You gotta take your time with it. Uh, not, this is not a cliche at all to say that. Exactly. Uh, um, well, Jason, it was so much fun talking with you, man. I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your schedule to talk to me about yeah. the national. It was great. Yeah, man. Thanks for calling me up. I appreciate it. Take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon, man. You too. All right. Thanks, Jason. All right, that was Jason Green from Pitchfork. Read his review on the site. As I said, I'm recording this podcast a couple of days before we're posting here. Uh, So I haven't actually read his review as I'm recording this, but I'm sure I will have read it by the time you hear this, and I'm sure it's great. Uh, Jason is always a very perceptive and uh, insightful writer. So definitely check that out, and then check out my piece as well, I wrote a profile of The National and also, I guess, a review of the record as well. Uh, That's on uprocks.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I say this every week, but I mean it. We would not have a a podcast without you guys and your support. So thank you so much for listening, for talking about us on social media, for helping us spread the word, for leaving us reviews on iTunes. All of these things make it possible for for us to do this every week. So, So... Thank you so much for doing that. That does it for this week's Celebration Rock. We will talk to you again next week.